Welcome to another episode of the Drug Classroom Podcast. Today I spoke with Emmanuel Sferios. He founded DanceSafe, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, in the late 1990s. And for decades, he's been working in harm reduction, especially dealing with MDMA. And now he's currently working on MDMA the Movie, an upcoming film focused on multiple aspects of the drug. He's done a lot throughout his life to spread good information about the substance and to spread the practice of drug checking. In this episode, we spoke about his personal story and connection to MDMA, how people can stay safe when using the substance, and prohibition, among other things. As always, this podcast and everything The Drug Classroom does is supported by donations, especially on Patreon. So if you want to support, please consider supporting on Patreon. And you can also help out by leaving reviews on iTunes and sharing the content with others. If you have any questions, you can find me at seth at thedrugclassroom.com. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. I'm here with Emmanuel Sferios. Emmanuel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think a lot of people have either directly benefited or indirectly benefited from your work and DanceSafe's work because it seems to be quite prolific in the areas of reagent testing and just providing harm reduction knowledge. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with some of the things you've done. But for those of you who are not familiar, can you just go into your background, how you got into harm reduction and MDMA? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I started Dan Safe in 1999. I was actually a needle exchange volunteer prior to that and had done some prisoner rights activism in Oakland and sort of came into drug policy reform through the racial justice angle because all the families we worked with in Oakland were African-American and had male relatives in in prison for life uh, for a handful of rocks. So I kind of realized, you know, this drug war is um, not what its uh, intention is and um, through that, said, you know, said, well, what's the alternative? You know, the alternative is harm reduction. Let's treat societal drug use from a public health perspective. And at the time, a needle exchange was really the only harm reduction service. You, you also had certain policies and shelters and uh, homeless shelters, for example, where they would, you know, not kick someone out just because they would relapse, but kind of work with them. And that was a type of harm reduction, you know, an alternative to abstinence only. Um, but really, it was just needle exchange. And and then a friend of mine uh, gave me a couple uh, tablets of ecstasy. I hadn't, this was 1998, I hadn't taken ecstasy in over 10 years. I took it when I was a teenager um, and enjoyed it and received a, a lot of benefits from it, actually, uh, took MDMA intentionally for therapeutic purposes. I could tell you that story if you want. But in any case, here we now had the internet uh, in 1998, and I got online to see what we had learned about this drug in the last 10 years, and I discovered the market was highly adulterated. PMA was causing a number of uh, fatalities, paramethoxyamphetamine, one of the most dangerous uh, misrepresented drugs on the ecstasy market. Even today, that's still the case, the most dangerous one. And that the Dutch government was funding a program where they would test ecstasy tablets at events using a chemical reagent, marquee reagent, same chemical used by customs and law enforcement. And I said, wow, uh, I want to do that here. Here's a way to expand harm reduction services to a whole new class of drug users and uh, really a new demographic. 
because prior to dance safe and and drug checking services harm reduction being only a really needle exchange was just perceived as something that only applied to iv drug users or addicts right but now we had a sort of party drug recreational market uh young people using psychedelics non-addicted users who um were also dying from prohibition in the drug war um and that's really how and why i started dance if i had never been to a rave before i was a punk i still i never listened to electronic music and i still prefer guitar based music uh but i do like to say i feel very privileged to have become a part of the uh, rave culture i think it's a beautiful culture I remember my first uh, massive uh, in downtown Oakland. That's what the large events were called back then, maybe five to 10,000 people. And all races and ethnicities were represented. In fact, uh, white kids were a minority. Asians were the largest group there, and you had a big percentage of Latinos and African Americans, and there were no fights. In fact, It was the first time I remember being around thousands of people on MDMA at the same time. And, you know, every once in a while, the group would start hooting and hollering. And then next thing you know, thousands of people in the parking lot would all just, in this collective expression of joy, just shouting, woohoo. And people would come to the booth and, and engage in discussions about their relationships and tell us how much they love their girlfriend or boyfriend you know it was really a A little different from your typical (laughs) concert i almost got beat up three times when i was a teenager at punk shows by skinheads you know the alcohol-fueled culture is very very different uh and it actually has even more harms associated with it you know but um alcohol is not illegal and we take a harm reduction approach whereas we don't with illicit drugs and that's what i was trying to change so um the rest is history we quickly spread uh, around the united states within six months we had 24 chapters across the u.s and canada Uh, we worked out amnesty agreements back then with security often local uh, off-duty police officers not to arrest the user approaching the booth. Uh, it wasn't until the federal government cracked down on the rave scene that we ever encountered any opposition to our work. So in, there was a brief period here in the U.S. where uh, it looked like harm reduction uh, was going to take off uh, and be widely accepted. Then the DEA crackdown happened, and, and now here we are 20 years later, and um, things are looking up again. I think harm reduction is becoming much more accepted. I would be hard-pressed to find anybody who says the drug war is working or that all we need to do is pour more money into it. Maybe the only exception to that is our new Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, but I don't think he's going to be able to change things. Culture is changing faster than these old guys can stop it. So I think we're on our way to practical and rational drug policies and that's a great great thing but that doesn't mean we need to we should stop we need to keep pressing hard for it can you bring us to the context of the time that you were getting into harm reduction how was mdma being viewed by the wider culture like what was the media saying about it how is it being talked about well you know there wasn't really much until the dea launched an anti-ecstasy media campaign in 1999 
you know, I think it's sort of, it was banned in 1985, and even the press back then was largely about the lawsuit with the therapists who were fighting the DEA to keep it uh, Schedule 3 so it, they could continue to use it medicinally with clients. They lost that battle. Um, you know, there were some late 80s news shows that focused on its therapeutic potential, but there was no real um, hysteria uh, around MDMA until 1999. And in fact, when I think about it, you know, there ha I don't think there's been an intentionally created drug hysteria since. I mean, the media kind of goes hysterical about, you know, kind of went crazy when when the cathinones appeared you know bath salts and you know zombie drug and face eating nonsense right <laughs> but those were small compared to what happened in 99 um where uh, you know every major tv radio station and newspaper did, did its demon drug story at the behest of the dea campaign but interestingly dance safe uh, got itself injected into that story. I remember 60 Minutes and Dateline calling me on the same day wanting to do stories on us. I'm like, what? That, what, you know, why? And they didn't, they didn't say why, but I learned, uh, you know, later talking to colleagues that, oh, the DEA just sent out a press release you know, wanting this, you know, new demon drug campaign. And the reason that 60 Minutes and Dateline called me was really not to do stories on dance safe and harm reduction, but because in the DA press release, it was very clear they wanted to associate the drug MDMA ecstasy with raves. Their intention was to create an alarm uh, to justify cracking down on the culture. They wanted to stomp out the rave culture, which they perceived to be nothing more than just illegal drug parties. And neither of these two media outlets uh, could get any promoter, obviously, to allow them into film. <laughs> and then they found our website and said, oh, look, here's this group that actually tests the drug in a rave. So maybe we can use them and get footage of the drug in a rave, which is what the DA wants. So, so you know, I talked with uh, some advisors who, and I was sort of um, uh, hesitant to work with them because, you know, the mainstream media was, was very alarmist and sensationalistic. But Rick Doblin, who was our fiscal sponsor at the time, uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, Rick, their executive director, who was an advisor to me, said, you know, any media for harm reduction will be good media, even if they slam you. So go ahead and do it. So I did 60 Minutes. Uh, Dateline took a different route. Uh, Dateline actually put a uh, hidden camera on a 16-year-old girl, sent her into raves to solicit drugs from people, and then edited it to make it look like she was being offered drugs by everyone. It really was like one of the worst, you know, most sensationalistic news shows at the time. But um, but 60 Minutes, you know, the interesting thing that happened is, um, you know, they send the junior producer out a few times to meet with you, to assess you, make sure you're on board, and before they send out the talking head who does the interview, right? Yeah. And uh, the junior producer, on her third visit, she whispers to me, you know, I just want you to know I've taken ecstasy, and I think what you're doing is great. <laughs> and so... 
you'd have the talking head flies out, and all she does is ask me in 15 different ways, aren't you just promoting drug use? And what do parents say? What do you say to parents who say you're just promoting drug use? And, you know, I learned basic PR skills, which is never repeat your opponent's argument even to deny it, right? Because that's all, if I said we don't promote drug use, that's all they would put on there is just me denying it, right? <laughs> so instead I said, you know, harm reduction saves lives and the drug war is killing children. And where are these parents that you, you know, I've never spoken to any parents that had told us we're just promoting, you know. Um, so the story came out, you know, a couple weeks later, and it was your 12-minute demon drug story, as you'd expect from the mainstream unit at the time. But in the middle was three minutes about DanceSafe, and they did us justice. The junior producer did not demonize us. And so that opened the floodgates for all the media at the time to do the harm reduction story. I must have done 600 interviews in the, over the next two years. It was crazy. Uh, sometimes I was doing, you know, five to ten interviews a day. MTV, 48 Hours, Geraldo, the Jim Lair Hour. I was on the Christina Show, which is the largest, the most watched show in the world, like the Spanish-speaking Oprah Winfrey. It's aired in, you know, countries around the world. Time, Newsweek, you know, all the Cosmo, Playboy, on every Doug and Bob radio show. And the most amazing thing about all this is that, you know, they all embraced harm reduction at the time. 60 Minutes sort of allowed them to do that. And I think it's because uh, even back then in the late 90s, most of the media personnel, right, the staff people, they, they all had taken ecstasy, right? They tend to be liberal, right? And they were pissed. So they want, and, and DanceSafe was the only entity telling the truth because the DEA scare campaign was so full of lies, right? I don't know if you remember they, or saw, I don't know how old you are, but they had the uh, holes in your brain girl on Oprah, yeah. right? Which is interesting, right? So Oprah was ready to do a good story on MDMA. She had me lined up, Rick Doblin lined up, Sue Stevens, who was one of the early advocates for MDMA therapy, having been on a number of media shows. She took MDMA therapeutically with her husband who was dying of cancer, end of life anxiety type thing. And and um, they were going to do harm reduction therapy. They were going to do it all right. But something happened. And literally two weeks before we were all to, to go on the, on Oprah Winfrey, a uh, producer called us back and said, sorry, they're taking it in, in a new direction. And what was that new direction? It was ecstasy puts holes in your brain where they actually had this 16-year-old girl on and they, they gave her an MRI to measure blood flow. And the thing about blood flow is, you know, uh, your blood flow to different areas of your brain changes all the time, depending on what activity you're engaged in. And they can turn the contrast up or down on the MRI image to sort of exaggerate the uh, blood flow areas to sort of see where it is. So they turn the contrast all the way up on this uh, teenage girl's uh, MRI so that it looked like she had golf ball size holes all throughout her brain. And they told her, this is what you've done to your brain because you took ecstasy and you've got these holes in your brain. And it was so ludicrous. I actually called, I found this girl. I, I called her just to tell her. I was outraged that the media would do that, like to a young person, lie to them, right? And I said, you do, I, found, I got a hold of her, I said, you do know you don't have holes in your brain. 
right? <laughs> and she said... Her whole life was going to be ruined. I mean. yeah, well, what she said back was startling. She said, I know, but I'm having lots of fun going on TV, so it's all good. And I was like, okay. And, you know, I'm making a documentary on MDMA right now where I'm going to be telling some of the story. And I thought, let me contact this girl and see what she's up to now. In hindsight, what does she think, right? Well, <laughs> she's a part of the uh, Drug Free America the Foundation, and she actually wrote a, a book called Rolling Away, The Agony of Ecstasy. So she just went on to make a, oh an, a career in anti-drug stuff, you know. One of the amazing things from that time period, when I was researching MDMA for some recent content, there were so many quotes from people involved with the DEA and other organizations, which were so alarmist. And these were not necessarily quotes that were being distributed to the media. These were actually things being said among themselves inside of events and things of that sort. And th there was one where it was like, we don't know, you know, what this is going to do to people. It could speed up brain aging by 20 years and you would have people who are 30 that would have like dementia. <laughs> and right. like, but this is an actual person who went through, I believe they were a pharmacologist or a medical doctor and how that could even be a thought unless they're just trying to misrepresent things. But I don't think it always was. There actually were, it seems to me, some people who really thought it was capable of some massive level of harm. But then, of course, you see instances like Oprah, where it was one piece of evidence, which is not actually evidence of anything, being totally misrepresented to suggest there's there's harm. But that has impacted the way that people view MDMA to this day. I mean, you'll still see echoes of right. the idea that you could sort of, even people that I talk to who have used Used drugs of this sort, or are at least fairly familiar with drugs, will think, you know, it takes like six months for your serotonin to be normal. And, you know, you'll have weeks of depression after using sort of these very alarmist right. ideas. And it seems like that can be tied to these, these, these yeah. early reports. So let's be clear, you know, there is some concern about MDMA neurotoxicity. I, I think it's, um, by now, we should know it's not as larger concern as it might have been to some people back in the late 90s. But, you know, really, MDMA had been around for 15 years at that point, right? Like half a million doses were used, uh, at least before MDMA was made illegal, uh, just within the network of therapists and psychiatrists who were administering it to patients for, you know, 10 years, and there was ample evidence it was not uh, producing cognitive impairments, destroying people's lives, any of these things. So I don't doubt the sincerity of some of the early researchers who were concerned, but I think their concern came largely as a result of the cultural righteousness that the drug war had at the time. Uh, and that's something that we need to nip in the bud, and people are right now. In, in other words, the drug warriors back then were had claimed for themselves the meme that they are the strong father figures protecting the children and the innocent, and drugs are bad. You know, we, this is Nancy Reagan years, right? Just say no. And kind of, kind of the height of the drug war, really. And, uh, you know, to, you could therefore get away with saying anything, even crazy things, as long as, you know, it fit within the ideology of drugs are bad. Because then you, what you believed that you were doing 
even though you knew you were technically wrong about the information, you were scaring young people, and that was considered the righteous thing to do, to scare them so that they won't try drugs, any illicit drugs, because, right, drugs are bad, okay, and you felt good about yourself for doing that. It's taken a couple decades and a new generation of young people to sort of come out of the closet and say, no, that's wrong, and in fact, the opposite is true. Prohibition is killing people. The scare tactics that you're putting out are jeopardizing the lives of young people and killing them because this approach that you have taken is preventing open, honest dialogue and conversation about harm reduction. And that leads directly to misuse, overuse, addiction, etc. In other words, the cause and effect is exactly backwards and people are realizing that now. And reformers, uh, harm reduction advocates, drug policy reformers are now going on the offensive like they should be and saying not just we need to legalize and regulate these drugs because of civil rights arguments, cognitive liberty, but because the drug war is primarily responsible for killing children. And and I, I strongly encourage everyone listening to this podcast to go on the offensive because that is absolutely the truth and we need to say it. We as reformers need to win for ourselves, to claim for ourselves the meme of the strong father. We need to end prohibition to save the weak, to protect the weak and the vulnerable, because the drug war actually manifests the very misuse and abuse of drugs that it pretends to be preventing. And that applies to all drugs, I mean, whether it's heroin or cocaine or MDMA, but especially when it comes to MDMA, it, there are probably just a few areas that you can address in a short piece of education to practically eliminate all of the harm potential for most people, because we know how people die, we know the majority of people who encounter harm are it's often coming, especially fatalities, is often coming from other drugs, which shouldn't even be an issue. I mean, that's an entirely prohibition-created problem. Um, it's right. akin to going to a store to buy alcohol, but somebody gives you methanol. I mean, of course there's going to be problems. That's not how things are supposed to work. Uh, but even outside of that, people just don't realize that the harms are coming from using way too much, from using it in a an environment which is potentially dangerous, um, being overactive when on it, and even something as simple as drinking too much water. But these are all such easy things to counter with just some basic messaging versus saying, you know, giving the biggest scare tactic to supposedly prevent use, which we know doesn't actually prevent use, and leaving everybody who decided to continue using despite the scare tactics to just fend for themselves. And it's really the perfect example of how prohibition creates almost all the harm. Absolutely. You know, the psychedelics and the the lesser addictive. I, I often, I, I can confidently say MDMA is non-addictive because pharmacologically you just can't take it every day. It won't work. But we don't like to say that with drugs. We like to say drugs have sort of addiction potential. And so even with the drugs with lesser addiction potential, or actually I was going to say that reverse, it's obvious that the drugs with lesser addiction potential, uh, that the harms are 100% uh, 99.9%. I just say, you know, there are pre-existing health conditions. There, so there could be fatalities around MDMA even in a post-prohibition world because there are strange, rare genetic pre uh, predispositions that, you know, could incline someone to a hyperthermic reaction. But the vast majority of fatalities are related to behavior and environment. And if those are regulated well in a in a post-prohibition world, they'd be cleared up. But I like to say that. Even with the great, more addictive drugs, 
uh, even addiction itself is largely correlated with our societal attitudes around drugs. And you, if we if we change that, if we treated addiction as a health issue, as a medical issue, uh, not as a criminal issue, and removed the stigma and the judgment around drug use, uh, we would lower addiction levels. Even addiction is, is a product of, of prohibition. It's like a socially created disease, right? I mean, it, it, it obviously there will be there are people that are going to have problems with addiction, but um, uh, we don't improve the situation by stigmatizing, judging, and condemning addicts to a life of crime and <laughs> all of uh, prison. Yeah, taken away. Take, we, you know, you you commit a a drug felony in the United States, and they won't give you student loans anymore, right? I mean, these are drug war is is not helpful to people that may be struggling with substance abuse disorders. It, it it makes things worse. Prohibition is a big contributor, even in those cases, and you see that because if you take the stance that drugs are so bad, you have to outright prohibit them, then it makes sense you're going to have a focus on abstinence only. And traditionally, that has been twelve step and things of that sort, where it's just this rehab detox model. And we know that doesn't work for a good portion of people. In fact, in many cases, it can exacerbate issues. It can work for a portion of users, but it's not always actually what's best. And because of that mentality in society, you're not even opening up all the potential treatments for addiction. In fact, some have been prohibited, whether it's the potential benefits of psychedelic therapy or the potential benefits of Ibogaine or, or really any other model is outside of abstinence is not even opened up. And as you were saying too, a lot of the issues with addiction also arise from the incredible lack of stability. I mean, if you have, say you have a drug habit, but you have a regular supply of the drug and it's not so expensive that you, all of your money is going to it and you don't lose your ability to get education or a job, then of course you're not going to have as many problems as somebody who effectively is pushed out onto the street by the current system. So yeah, whether it's acute harms of any drug or addiction, it seems to be greatly exacerbated. Uh, dealing specifically with MDMA, what are the acute harms that people really need to be aware of and need to think about when they're going into using it? Well, the most important one is heat stroke. Uh, MDMA... Uh, inhibits our body's natural thermoregulation uh, because it, um, well, it overwhelms the hypothalamus with serotonin. So it deregulates hypothalamus where sort of our brain recognizes our body temperature. And many MDMA users will note uh, that if they take MDMA in a cold environment, even a room temperature environment, they feel colder. And you often see people kind of bundling up uh, because that, and that's the dysregulation uh, what they might have a hard time recognizing is that when they're in a hotter environment, they are more likely to be hotter. And, and, and so MDMA increases heat stroke potential. Uh, if you just took a large dose of MDMA and you sat on a couch and um, in a room temperature environment and you didn't uh, dance aerobically, uh, you, unless you had a pre-existing condition, uh, we can talk about that in a minute, you wouldn't suffer uh, heat stroke. Uh, but if you're in a 100-degree environment, either outdoor festival or uh, an indoor nightclub where they uh, don't have an adequate uh, air conditioning system and it's really hot and you're dancing aerobically, 
um, being on MDMA will increase your chances of having a heat stroke, with it, which is which can be life threatening. And the majority of MDMA related fatalities are heat stroke. So that means the good news around that is that there, that's easily preventable with education, both education of the drug user and education of the promoters and venues to establish safer environments, have enough shade structure if it's a summer festival, have chill rooms, provide free and freely accessible, uh, adequate water, etc. Problem here is that uh, for the past 20 years, it's only really been the public health community, specifically the public health community that works with illicit drug use, that has understood this. Uh, most doctors, including coroners and medical examiners, will cite these fatalities as overdoses. And I guess probably about 10 years ago, they started saying, instead of overdose, uh, MDMA toxicity. Well, that's a step in the right direction uh, because you know these fatalities are rarely correlated with uh, super high doses. People are dying from heat stroke after taking a normal recreational dose of the drug. Uh, they're not dying from taking too much. Uh, in the overwhelming number of cases. Um, so calling it MDMA toxicity is a step in the right direction, but they never ask about the environment that the person died in. Here's a good example. All serotonin drugs, all serotonergic drugs, drugs that affect serotonin, have the same increased heat stroke potential. And so, you know, every year a marathon runner dies uh, during the summer, you know, athletes die of heat stroke and when that happens, if, that, if they were on Prozac, for example, the coroner will never put down that they died of a, a Prozac overdose or Prozac toxicity. They put down that they died of heat stroke. You know, you're running a marathon, you're on Prozac, you're at greater risk of heat stroke, and you die, right? Oh, heat stroke, death. We need to, you know, educate long-distance runners to adequate, a adequately hydrate. You know, we need to make sure that marathon promoters don't schedule mar summer marathons in the south cancel the marathon if a heat wave comes through right etc basic basic stuff here but when somebody is dancing for six hours straight in a hundred degree nightclub on mdma and die they call it you know mdma toxicity they don't call it heat stroke and that prevents the public from understanding the real causes of these fatalities and what we can do to prevent them. It's the same thing with both drugs. You know, the only difference might be that uh, because there's a euphoria with MDMA, it masks the symptoms of dehydration in the and, and heat stroke in the person who, who's suffering it. Uh, so it's a little more dangerous than Prozac in that way, right? You, you're feeling it, it kind of can catch up on you. This is what really, what really happens. Like, you know, I think even like, uh, and that's why, uh, you know, in the festival community, so it's more riskier environment. You know, if you're, uh, you can more easily kind of notice when you're um, overheating if you're just sort of chilling out <laughs> with your friends on a couch, like, why am I sweating so much, etc. But if you're dancing aerobically where you're going to like kind of know that you're going to sweat anyway, then, and you're feeling the euphoria from the MDMA, you might not know, and then you collapse on the dance floor, and you're already at a very dangerous, life-threatening situation. And when responding to the heat stroke potential, there was, for a long time, a focus 
on, and there still is, on water consumption, but it seems at least in a, a few isolated cases that led to creating a new risk, which was hyponatremia. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I actually believe hyponatremia is uh, more prevalent than we realize. Um, one of the uh, pieces of evidence for that is the two to one ratio female to male uh, with MDMA-related fatalities. Uh, people have puzzled a, a, a about that, but, you know, you look at the all people dying after they take MDMA, twice as many women die as men. Uh, why would that be the case? You could speculate, you know, uh, whether they, they're smaller generally, but, but again, the uh, body weight has little to do with it. It's not so much that people are overdosing, right? I think what's going on here is that when people start overheating, uh, the standard harm reduction advice is to, you know, cool down and drink water. And so people start feeling and they get scared and then they drink too much water. And if you're female and it's at a particular stage of your menstrual cycle, you could have significantly more estrogen floating around in your system and estrogen regulates how sodium crosses the blood uh, the uh, cell membranes and so so men suffer hypotremia uh, which is just sort of defined as low sodium in your blood equally as women do when they take MDMA but w in women it becomes more life-threatening uh, and so a lot of these fatalities are, you know, just again, they're usually just called uh, they died from MDMA toxicity. Um, and then the public health community uh, will, you know, say, well, no, that's really heat stroke. Um, but I think a greater percentage of these are and women actually hyponitremia deaths because in their panic to reduce their body temperature, they drink too much water. You know, it's hard to tell, though. Right, because uh, sometimes um, death can happen pretty quickly. And it's worth noting that, and I, I agree, yeah, although there's relatively few MDMA fatalities when it's only MDMA. So the number of times that hyponatremia is actually killing people is, is relatively low. But in terms of the prevalence within users, it's probably fairly high. Even in a controlled study with um, from Matthew Baggett, there was one person who had transient hyponatremia just from a common dose of MDMA with a higher water consumption. And if you combine that with the way that people often take it, it's not surprising you would see pretty significant levels of hyponatremia, but it's not, I don't know that that concern is always known as much, though I'm not also in the in the scene enough to know what people tend to learn about for harm. You know, the people in the scene, in the harm reduction scene, are generally not the ones that are dying. It's uh, young people who haven't yet learned this stuff. It's why there are so few drug-related deaths at Burning Man, even though it's in the middle of the summer and there's 70,000 people every year, or at uh, Shambhala or LIB. LIB had its first death, and we, um, I don't know if media came this last year, and we think it was actually um, N-bomb, so it was misrepresented drugs uh, instead of LSD. I want to research that and see if any, we know any more information. But generally, the sort of transformative festivals that are more um, explicitly uh, psychedelic uh, drug-related have far fewer fatalities. The fatalities are happening at EDC and Tomorrow World and Ultra, etc., where there's tons of young people who are not psychonauts and don't know anything about 
how to protect themselves. But there's one thing you said I want to correct here, and that is that, um, and I think it's a, f a fairly common misperception that the majority of MDMA-related fatalities uh, involve other drugs uh, besides MDMA. That used to be the case, and this is actually uh, going to be one of the investigative narratives in my upcoming documentary. Uh, because when I resigned from Dance Safe back in the early 2000s, there was, you know, only two or three MDMA-related fatalities a year on average. And virtually all of them were a result of PMA or PMMA, right? There was even debate back then as to whether MDMA itself had ever caused anyone to die. Right. You know, I, I think most of us knew that heat stroke, even back then, you can die from heat stroke even after you take pure MDMA and there were a few deaths, but uh, mostly uh, they were adulterants and that was true. That's not true anymore today. Uh, there, uh, fatalities have quintupled. There's probably 20 to 30 MDMA related fatalities a year in the United States right now. And uh, toxicology reports coming back from them indicate that the, the vast majority of them are MDMA alone. So we have to ask ourselves, and I do in this movie, what's going on here? Something really strange has happened. And um, there is a number of uh, explanations for that. I think one is uh, summer festivals have gotten huge. The Rave Act Past and promoters aren't working with Dance Safe anymore. So a whole and a, a whole slew of young people have come into the scene now that that EDM has gone mainstream. And like I said, don't know. They're not psychonauts. They don't know what they're doing. They just they're just popping Molly, right? And uh, the bath salts have flooded the scene uh, and uh, you know methadone, mephedrone, etc. People are confusing these cathinone class drugs with MDMA, and uh, that it's, it appears that methalone, which is the most common of the cathinones in the, the U.S., has a roughly similar safety profile as MDMA, right? Increases heat stroke risk, etc. So it's not that people are dying so much from methalone, uh, but what's happening is that the culture has started to base their dosing habits on methalone. And with methalone, you dose at a much greater amount than MDMA. People take 300 milligrams to start. They redose every hour. Methalone and the other cathinones are, generally speaking, broad-based monoamine reuptake inhibitors, which means you can take more when you come down and get high again because they don't just release serotonin, right? MDMA is a selective serotonin releaser. And once you release your serotonin, it takes a week or two, depending on diet and genetics, to replenish it. So you just, you can't take MDMA continually redose every hour. But because all these young people don't know that they're actually taking methalone, that they're just taking Molly, right? They, they think they're consuming MDMA. And so now suddenly they get pure MDMA for the first time, or they just tell their new friend coming into the scene, oh, this is how much you're supposed to take, and then in a couple hours we'll take 200 milligrams more, etc. Now you start seeing, we're, we are starting to see people taking very large doses of MDMA that they never took 
back in the late 90s when I started Dance Safe, when this scene was more underground and therefore it was more of an educated scene. And it was all press tablets. That's another thing. No cathinones to confuse. There is a, a psychological serving size effect with the press tablets where you rarely saw people take more than two. You know, like... Uh, you're supposed to take one. That's the serving size of what, you know, but it could be a little weak. So maybe you'd take one and a half or two, but we rarely ever saw people taking three or more. Now that it's all loose powder, uh, I would say maybe Los Angeles and Florida has a good share of uh, tablets still, but most of the country, the MDMA we're seeing is, is, you know, they call it Molly, right? The loose powder version. And because most of it is actually cathinones, the and it's loose powder. Pe people are taking very large dose. They're finger dipping. They're insufflating, snorting. Now, uh, again, things that may be appropriate with a cathinone, which is more closely related to a traditional stimulant than it is a psychedelic. And then they end up taking way too much MDMA. And I, I, so I have to, you know, kind of clarify here, like that that uh, the dosing is is likely correlated with heat stroke fatalities right but they they still we they're not overdoses they're heat stroke but if you were to take you know 800 milligrams one of the fatalities uh that we are featuring in the my upcoming movie mdma the movie was a young man at paradiso who died and uh, over the course of two days he he took 800 milligrams of mdma because uh that's what they thought they were supposed to do because he and his friends were basing their dosing on on the cathinus right on methylone which was the most common still is the most common cathinone sold as molly and of course, there was also a heat wave happening. It was, you know, up to 109 degrees in the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, they had inadequate shade structure, inadequate water, etc. So in his case, it was sort of a perfect storm. Uh, a lot of people got sick. And, uh, two people died that year at Paradiso. So you have this issue of of dosing when it comes to being based upon cathinones and also coming from loose powder. And then I know in some places, and I feel like recently there were some stories about it being in the U.S. as well as high dose tablets, which are two, three hundred milligrams. Um, has that become more of an issue as well? I, I think I think in Europe that has, yeah. And again, you know, we have to point back to prohibition on all of this because. The manufacturers in the Netherlands now are sort of competing with one another to put out the best beans, right? Best pills. And uh, so they're, you know, putting out super high-dose pills. One of the main manufacturers doing this uh, it, it puts a score on the back, and I heard that their defense of it was that, oh, you're supposed to break it in half. But obviously, you know, new teenagers entering the scene every year don't know that. And, um, you know, their first dose could end up being 275, 300 milligrams. That's, that's too high. You know, uh, it, 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 it maybe will moderately increase your, your heat stroke potential. It's not going to kill 99.9% .9 of the people, but it's still, it's too high for having a positive experience on it. Yeah, what would actually happen with those kinds of doses compared to 125? Have you ever seen anyone totally wigged out on uh, MDMA where they're, gurning, their jaws going crazy, they, they, <laughs> you know, a lot of people say MDMA, people don't look very good on MDMA, and I, I think that's when they take way too much, you know, and uh, there, are, there are other potential side effects from taking too much, um, some of them benign, like uh, nystagmus, eye wiggles, body tension, 
but uh, there, there's, we've also seen people uh, suffer short-term memory loss sort of in the same way when you consume too much cannabis, uh, where you forget what happened minutes before. You know, none of these things are... I mean, kind of, I think people who, who smoke cannabis, uh, that might be sort of an acceptable uh, side effect if you're really trying to get stoned because you're ready to go to sleep, you know, and you don't mind that you can't follow the conversation, you know. Yeah, but if you're really activated, then you don't want to be really confused or impaired. That's not what people want from MDMA. Yeah. No, no, people are looking for an experience of, you know alertness and lucidity and bonding with your friends and having fun, you know. So, you know, not to mention the neurotoxic risk uh, dramatically increases with these higher doses, um, uh, which can lead to a long-term tolerance, which um, is close to permanent, you know, in many people. I think uh, you many most people who take MDMA too frequently or in, in too high doses build up a, a, a tolerance to the drug that remains for years. You know, they would have to quit for many years in order to experience the original magic again. On top of that, there's also the, just in the acute phase, it would seem a much higher potential for an actual, a true come down. I mean, if you're only taking in a reasonable environment, 125 milligrams, it doesn't seem like a major come down is this, this real yeah. risk. Yeah. Well, let, let's ex explain that. That's a good question. And I've, I've, I've thought, uh, researched this, uh, quite a bit about 30%. This is my guesstimate of uh, the population of MDMA users experience. This is what they call a negative come down or a hangover at all. Right, about seventy percent don't experience any negativity when they come down. They 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 sometimes say the next day they still have an afterglow. They feel something, but it's not negative, right? So why do thirty percent of the people experience a negative come down? I think some of that is a pre-existing vulnerability in their serotonin system, whatever it may be. Someone who has undiagnosed depression or is vulnerable to depression. MDMA does deplete serotonin. Uh, we know it's not a one-to-one -one ratio of serotonin levels and depression or non-depression. Um, that's sort of a myth that all you need to do is increase your serotonin levels and the depression will go away. Uh, clearly, when you flood your brain with serotonin like MDMA does, uh, that produces a, a very significant antidepressant effect in the vast majority of people who take it. So there's some truth in higher serotonin levels are equal higher mood, but it has their you know, receptors, serotonin receptors up and down regulate production of serotonin. There's, there's lots of feedback mechanisms. So it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but nonetheless, I think there, there's some correlation between MDMA hangovers and a pre-existing vulnerability to depression. But what you said is also absolutely 100% true. The severity of that hangover is going to be related to the amount of MDMA that you take. And there's a very simple reason for that. Um, and uh, it's very important for people to understand who are concerned about their mental uh, health uh, and who use MDMA. And that is MDMA binds to the serotonin reuptake transporter. It's a molecule on the axon that normally scoops up serotonin and puts it back into the axon for storage to maintain homeostasis. Um, drugs like Prozac and Zoloft, SSRIs, they um, 
they bind to that receptor and prevent the serotonin from going back into storage so it lingers in the synapse longer and has you know more uh, binds more to postsynaptic receptors and for people who it works for uh, SSRIs work very well as an antidepressant not everyone but the ones it works for well MDMA binds to the same receptor but instead of just stopping the serotonin from uh, that's released naturally from uh, going back into storage it actually causes the axon to release its serotonin and that's actually the drug right serotonin is the drug MDMA doesn't bind to postsynaptic receptors it just causes your natural serotonin to be released and that's what you're feeling but when you come down you want to stop that process you want to replenish the serotonin in your brain as quickly as possible so that you can have a normally functioning brain where you get proper release and reuptake of serotonin when you know naturally you're supposed to uh, but serot but MDMA stays in your system for three to five days after you take it right because with the half-life right it can be detected in urine up to five days later and the uh, and and when it's in there it's still trickling out the serotonin that your brain is trying to release I mean trying to restore to replenish it's not nearly enough to get you high right you, you have way less serotonin available than you did normally but uh, it, it's preventing you from reestablishing your serotonin stores um, and the higher dose that you take the more that's gonna happen over the ne next three to five days right so you know lower doses is the most important uh, thing you can take you can do to if you suffer a hangover uh, to mitigate that, you could take uh, 5-HTP. It's uh, you know very very popular piece of a lot of people do it. You know to direct precursor to serotonin. You could also take an SSRI to short circuit and prevent that process from happening. And that that's probably the most significant thing you could do if you're concerned, um, because studies have shown that Prozac has a higher affinity for the serotonin reuptake transporter than MDMA, meaning this, the Prozac will dislodge the MDMA, replace it, uh, and thus stop the process of your serotonin axons trickling out all their serotonin. Uh, so, we, and we know this from animal studies with uh, fluoxetine or Prozac, um, it's most likely the case with other SSRIs too. I don't know if there have been specific studies on them. We do know that no matter what SSRI a person takes, it reduces the effect of MDMA. So it, that likely means that all the pharmaceutical FS, SSRIs have a higher affinity for that transporter and will work uh, the same way. You know, so, uh, so the, the, and, and it should be made clear that it is not uh, dangerous. Uh, SSRIs are not contraindicated with MDMA. That's a myth that's gone around for a long time now uh, because generally speaking doctors and scientists who, under, who want to warn people about doubling up serotonin drugs, right? Like uh, in general, you, you don't want to take drugs that uh, both work on increasing serotonin levels. Uh, the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, for example, are contraindicated with many drugs and you, if you're on one of those, you should absolutely not take MDMA, right? But because uh, the SSRIs work on the same transporter protein that MDMA works on, they compete for that protein and 
so they kind of you actually you reduce the potential for serotonin syndrome uh, for heat stroke for an adverse reaction if you take an SSRI uh, while you're on MDMA. And if you actually if you're on an SSRI before you take MDMA, you won't really you don't really feel it. Can you talk about the role of dopamine when it comes to MDMA? I know you were saying it's primarily serotonin-based, and I've heard yeah. varying perspectives on, well, one, on the acute effects, how much dopamine contributes, if at all, and then also the potential connection between dopamine and the possible neurotoxicity. Sure. So what we know is that MDMA is a selective serotonin releaser. It does not have affinity for dopamine receptors or the dopamine a reuptake transporter. It, uh, but when you flood your brain with serotonin, there are secondary effects, cascading effects in uh, that increase dopamine levels as well. And you know, many researchers believe that that is an, an, an important part of the MDMA effect, both therapeutically and and recreationally. You know, dopamine makes us alert, makes us awake, etc. I don't know if there have been studies that have blocked dopamine release uh, to see how MDMA affects animals. Because you, I don't think you can block dopamine release without uh, the animal or person suffering Parkinson's-like symptoms, right? So, you, you know, so how much is dopamine important role in the MDMA uh, psychological effect? It's all speculation, but I think it's, it's fairly significant. I think the serotonin is the most important piece of the puzzle. Um, and I, I don't think it's that significant in most users because if you look at the effects of pure dopamine releasers or reuptake inhibitors like cocaine, you know, meth, cocaine, etc., you get a significant increase in norepinephrine uh, as a result, increased heart rate, uh, things like that, which are more mild with MDMA. That's why I think that uh, the, the dopamine release of from the secondary effect of the serotonin release in MDMA users is more more moderate. Then your other question was, you know, is a dopamine uh, related in MDMA's neurotoxic effect? And you know, it might be. Uh, I, to be honest, I've sort of stopped looking deeply into the mechanism of MDMA's neurotoxic effect because. Uh, you know, over the past 30 years, I think we now know that uh, whatever, uh, it's not that significant. But one of the theories is that when you deplete all of your serotonin, it uh, leaves your reuptake transporters, those molecules on the membrane of your serotonin axons, vulnerable to foreign bodies getting in, maybe a metabolite of MDMA or maybe dopamine, and then it gets oxidized in there, causing damage to the axon. That's the general theory of how MDMA neurotoxicity uh, works. And I think the evidence that it's happening in humans um, is that uh, there's this long-term tolerance effect that's hard to explain any other way. Again, you use it too much, too, too high doses, the magic goes away. And I'm one of those people, right? You know, to me, uh, you know, MDMA is not like it was when I first took it as a teenager. I've taken it too many times, I guess, and now it's a very, very mild experience. And, you know, you, you, many users uh, report that. And, and so what, what could it, it lasts so long? I remember in myself, and I've talked to many people about this, right? So this isn't speculation. We, we know this happens. 
uh, where, you know, you try it again even a year later and you still don't have the magic. You need to wait years. And this correlates with what we know in animal studies that uh, the axons that get damaged from using from too high doses or too frequent doses, they eventually grow back, but it takes some time. You know, so all this is like, oh, scary, scary, you know, brain damage, it's a buzzword, etc. But I really want to put this all in context, you know, not only have I not experienced anything that I could call uh, negative or, you know, cognitive impairment, even though I've used... Uh, uh, MDMA probably too frequently or in too high doses. <laughs> but uh, there are no properly controlled scientific studies that show cognitive impairments in even very heavy MDMA users. There's only one that I know of that shows very small verbal memory differences, not even impairments, just differences in the controls but generally what happens, how these studies work, is they, they take, you know, polydrug heavy MDMA users currently in a raving lifestyle, and they give them, you know, cognitive ability tests and compare them to a group of controls, which are typically grad students from the university where the study is happening. So you're getting people that's in a, in a party lifestyle who are using lots of different drugs, and you're comparing them with people who, you know, are in a very studious um, environment and not using any drugs. And, of course, there's going to be uh, differences in the cognitive abilities at that time for these people. But that says nothing about whether or not MDMA uh, is neurotoxic or whether these differences are a result of neurotoxicity. And then the other problem with most of these studies is that they can't separate out the temporary effects of serotonin depletion and downregulation of receptors from neurotoxicity because they can't find people who have abstained from MDMA for a significant enough period of time. Almost all of these studies only require a two-week period of abstention. And, and everyone who's been using MDMA every weekend for months and months and months knows that it may, might take more than two weeks to... Uh, you know, you know, feel normal again. If you're abusing MDMA by taking it every weekend for a long time, you know what I mean? So you, you have re postsynaptic receptors that downregulate, you have serotonin depletion. These things might be causing the small differences. Again, none of this is impairments, right? No MDMA user has ever been shown, no studies ever shown in cognitive impairments, just small differences, and, and none of them are really properly controlled. But what we do know is that we have 40 years of people taking MDMA in clearly excessive amounts, millions of people around the world, and we don't see complaints. We don't see, we don't have a generation of brain-damaged people. We don't, you know, no, nobody says uh, that I think I've destroyed my brain by taking MDMA. Uh, and so I think that the, um, the, the risk is overblown. I think the risk is real. I think neurotoxicity is happening. I just think the consequences of it are uh, very, very low. And what I like to say about that is that there is a drug that uh, overuse of it will produce very serious cognitive impairments that are permanent and long-lasting. And that drug is available on every street corner, and it's called alcohol. Alcohol is one of the most neurotoxic drugs that we know of. And we 
operate from a harm reduction perspective around it. Uh, and we, you know, we need to do the same thing for MDMA. Whether or not a person chooses to use MDMA in light of the fact that it is neurotoxic, that's their personal choice. But it should have no bearing on our policies around this drug because it ain't going away. People are going to continue to use it and want to use it just like they do with alcohol. And we need education. We need um, uh, to take a public health approach. And clearly, hands down, 100 times over, MDMA is safer and produces less harm both to the individual and to society than alcohol. In fact, I would say the balance there, you know, <laughs> may be hundreds of times more, right? The, the, the beneficial effects of MDMA are so great relative to alcohol and the harms of alcohol are so great compared to the harms of mdma and in terms of addiction in terms of social violence even in terms of acute poisonings even if you want to claim that these heat stroke deaths are a result of overdose or mdma toxicity there are more acute alcohol poisonings in young people every year fraternity hazing rituals etc acute not even addiction just you drank too much alcohol you die right for this kind of permanent tolerance phenomenon that exists for some people what kind of dosing were they involved in or even yourself from experiencing it you know this is probably not every you know six months or something that led to this kind of situation like how frequent does it seem to be where you end up with this long long-lasting, reduced response? You know, it's going to be different in every person. It's hard to tell. I mean, I can I can say I took uh, uh, MDMA once a month when I was 16 and 17 years old and did not. And I only took 125 milligrams each time I did it, did not take a booster, right? Once a month for uh, about a year. That was, And I didn't experience any um, tolerance at that point. You know, and then I, th I think it was in my um, uh, 30s where I took larger doses um, and for a period, you know, every couple of weeks. And I think after that is when I experienced the tolerance. But, you know, I've talked to people who have taken, who say they experienced tolerance after, you know, just 10 uses, you know. Uh, the problem here is that you, most people don't know how much they're taking, especially back then in the 90s. I mean, even today, no people don't take out milligrams. They don't know how much they're taking, right? Yeah. Uh, if you take a tablet, you know, so it's really hard to know this. I, th I think, you know, if people stick, you know, you know, I, I, I never, Ann Shulgin says four times a year. That's, that's I think, very moderate. Uh, I think even people take a little more than that, as long as they stick with, uh, you know, 125 milligrams or less, they're 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 probably fine. They can use MDMA on a frequency like that, you know, four times a year. I would think the rest of your life, perhaps, and uh, not experience any tolerance and obtain all the benefits from it. But um, but everyone is different. Everyone's brains are different. Uh, you know, uh, the drug is metabolized differently, um, and, and depending on our liver enzymes. Uh, the way our serotonin neural network is constituted could be there's, there's so many unknown factors. It's just it's why dance saves motto was always less is more um, and uh, moderation in all things. Right, the original website. I think it's still up there now. A picture of Aristotle, moderation in all things. That's really what the people need to know. And less is more. You know, especially with MDMA. Again, the most important piece of harm reduction information to know is that you can't take more MDMA to get the high back when you come down. It's counterintuitive because most drugs, you, you know, you, you get high, uh, you know, you smoke cannabis, you get high, you smoke 
more cannabis you get higher uh same thing with you know opiates cocaine stimulants because they're not uh selective releasers of serotonin you can't do it with mdma and you're increasing uh the risks of heat stroke and long-term tolerance if you do that um, it won't work so if you want to enjoy mdma and receive the benefits of it uh for a longer period of your life less is more would you say it's fair to suggest that unlike with say lsd there is really no reason to go over a certain dose range for mdma for pretty much everybody it's going to be the same amount for all uses unlike say lsd where you're using x amount for x purpose and then more for another reason uh yes i except i don't think it's the same amount for every person because of like what I said earlier, liver differences, etc. But once you find that right amount for yourself, uh, I don't see any reason to go much higher than that. To go higher, right? Find the amount that works for you uh, because, you know, with the traditional psychedelics like LSD and mushrooms, there are qualitative differences between a light experience and a heavy experience. And a heavy experience can be really heavy, right? You know, there are some people that might like to take, you know, 800 micrograms and just really blow their mind for a good 24 hours on LSD. Um, I know, you know, people that the whole heroic dose of mushrooms, for example, but then you can microdose on these things too, right? Uh, LSD, you know. I and my wife enjoy taking 15 micrograms of LSD uh, for occasionally, you know. Um, 25 is like a, maybe a museum dose of LSD. Or so it's a more dynamic that. drug. Yes, exactly, exactly, you know. And so, and you know, mushrooms the same the same way but with mdma for one you need you can't microdose on mdma you have to reach a threshold dose in order to get enough serotonin release that you feel any positive effect if you take a just sub threshold dose say for most people that might be 50 milligrams you might actually only experience increased anxiety a lot of people feel anxiety coming up from MDMA. It's very common. Uh, I do, even still. There's a period on the way up where I like just feel a little anxiety. I know it's going to go away, so I don't freak out about it, you know. But I think that's the period at which whatever's happening with the serotonin release isn't enough to overwhelm the amygdala and shut down that anxiety. It might even actually increase it a little bit. But when you get the threshold... Ah, right. All the stress goes away. You feel that relaxation and alertness that's so uh, prized, uh, unique characteristic of MDMA. But you need to get up to enough. Even in the MAPS PTSD studies, they found that um, sub-threshold doses actually made uh, PTSD worse. You give veterans in a therapeutic session with PTSD 50 milligrams of MDMA, and, and they had worse outcomes because they just increased the anxiety. Uh, so then on the flip side of it, you know, you find the result where you get just enough serotonin release that you get that positive effect. And taking more of the drug doesn't add any more um, positivity to it. <laughs> it just increases uh, the side effects, you know. And, uh, you know, like uh, two things to say about that. One, first is that they found greater therapeutic Higher therapeutic benefits results in the MAPS PTSD, the phase two study, from the lower dose of MDMA, like 75 milligrams rather than 125. And one of the theories around that is that like the euphoria that comes with the full size dose might prevent uh, the person 
from being able to talk more about their problems, right? Like, uh, and so um, a recreational dose might be slightly higher because you know recreational users want to get the euphoria. They don't. They don't. You know, necessarily want to just talk about their past traumas, right? And be a little more clear-headed. You get so. So I think there's a way in which you know people you know take in a recreational context slightly higher. Uh, dose than what would be optimum in a therapeutic context, and um, and that's okay. I'm not a judge against pleasure, right? Right, pleasure is a fine thing, <laughs> uh, but you go too much higher than that, you're not going to increase the pleasure. The second thing I wanted to say about that is, and again, I think this is prohibition and drug war related. You know, higher doses will enable you to stay awake longer, and if you redose on it throughout the night, you're certainly going to get uh, more of a stimulant effect, but I think if people are using MDMA to get a stimulant effect, that is a 100% consequence of the drug war. Absolutely 100% drug war. Because MDMA is not a good drug for a stimulant. If you just want to stay awake, you know, like try coffee, try a Ritalin, try a stimulant that just, you know, gets makes you alert, you know. You don't, you don't want to increase your dose of MDMA, right? I also think it's like uh, sort of culturally, you know, like uh, be, because we don't have open communication about the, the real effects of psychedelics, they, that MDMA molly has gotten lumped in drug war culture as a stimulant. You know, if you, even today, the absurdity, you go to the NIDA website, you go to the DE website, or you read media stories where the author went to the NIDA website, it will say, MDMA is a hallucinogenic amphetamine sharing similar qualities to mescaline and amphetamine. Uh, no. I mean, in a way, it shares a similar quality to mescaline, but that's only because mescaline has a little bit of that intactogenic effect that MDMA has, right? But MDMA has an intactogenic effect that's qualitatively different from uh, LSD or any tryptamine or, or and most other phenethylamines and, uh, and, and meth. It, it, it is qualitatively different. Most people who say they feel more relaxed. I've had users that I've talked to in interviews who said, I had an adverse reaction to MDMA because when I took it the first time, I just wanted to chill out and relax. And I had to tell them, no. You should see the Reddit posts that yeah. exist. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, because people are told, they're told that this is a stimulant and they're supposed to get all hyped and amped up on it. And then they don't and they go, wow, this isn't what I thought it was, you know. And so that's a consequence of the drug war, you know. And I've actually talked to people, why do you take MDMA? And they'll say, oh, to stay awake all night at the rave. And I think, uh, you know, that you don't know. And the, the part of why I started when, Dance Safe, well, I should say, when I started Dance Safe, I was just offering ecstasy pill testing, right? I, I thought that was really the only need out there, help people find the real stuff. Um, then I, I started realizing just how much misuse and abuse of drugs went on in the rave culture and uh, because of lack of education and, and, and lack of a pride in being a drug user, right? 
I realized like the the drug war was creating unhealthy relationships. Young people go into the experience thinking these drugs are bad and I'm bad for doing it or at best I'm a rebel for doing it. And that led to p- people using too much and the conversations, you know, like, "Oh, I got so f- fucked up," right? Like, you know, the words that we that young people use around their drug use is a direct consequence of our culture that stigmatizes and tells young people they're bad when they do it. The best way to reduce the harm is to give young people permission and give them a healthy way to understand how to gain the benefits and use these drugs properly, with pride. So very quickly I realized that DanceSafe, my goal with DanceSafe was to create a responsible drug culture, one that was diametrically opposite to the culture of prohibition started started by the drug war. And, you know, that doesn't have to be 100% associated with the psychonaut spiritual kind of association. I think that's a very important one to the degree that people feel spiritual or tribal connection and they develop a philosophy and uh, spiritual philosophy around the use of these psychonauts. That's great. That's probably one of the most healthy uh, orientations to have. But I also think, uh, particularly with MDMA, which doesn't have so much of these otherworldly type insights, it's more of a hard experience, that that just pure, you know, bonding, fun, communication, not necessarily with a spiritual orientation, that it's also can be a very healthy, uh, very positive for society and for the individual, you know, way of orienting yourself around it, around the use. And that's why I always tell people, you know, when I speak at universities, have an intention if you choose to use a drug, any drug. And I even say, state it out loud. Maybe it seems silly to you, but if you state your intention out loud before you swallow that pill, you will have a much better chance of avoiding trouble. It's when you take a drug unconsciously, when you don't know why you're doing it. And again, you know, people like yourself, you know, those of us in the psychonaut community who are already kind of naturally that way. You know, when I was 16, I went to the library to research this drug before I ever took it, you know. Most people aren't like that. Their friend gives them a drug, oh, try this, it's really cool, you'll feel great, or whatever. You know, Actually, if they say you feel great, that's... That's a step in the right direction than saying, oh, I'll fuck you up, right? Like, <laughs> but if you don't know why you're taking a drug, you know, you might, even if it's pleasure, even if you just say, hey, I want to feel good. I want to experience pleasure. You say that out loud to the friends you're with, at least then you'll know when you're not getting the benefits you're looking for and you'll be more moderate, right? It's uh, different from psychedelics in terms of the benefits people tend to report, but personally, from your use, what kind of benefits? Because I do notice some people talk about improving their emotional lives or just the just the experience of, of love or, or especially if it's with another person can be really enhancing. What are the kind of benefits you've noticed from MDMA? For myself personally? Yeah. Uh, well, so, okay. Well, I first took MDMA in 1986 when I was 16 years old, one year after it was made illegal. And the reason that I did so is because I read the Newsweek article in the spring of 1985. This was the first mainstream news article about MDMA. Newsweek, April 1985. It's on the MAPS website. They have a news history archive. And this article was all about its use in therapy. I think there was one paragraph about people taking it in nightclubs in Texas, and that's why the DEA was banning it. But it had quotes from Charlie Grobe and Rick Doblin and other therapists. And I was a um, homeless teenager at the time, having 
uh, left my uh, home because of abuse, and I had I got lucky that I met uh, some uh, grown-ups who you know got me on a path of, of of healing and suggested that I do therapy. Of course, I was homeless; I couldn't afford therapy. But I read this article about a therapy drug, and I said, "Wow, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna find this drug, and I'm gonna take it with a friend, and I'm gonna talk about." my childhood trauma. So that was my first experience with it, and it uh, was exactly what it was sold to be as when I finally found it, almost a year later. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it allowed me to forgive my father. It allowed me to forgive myself. I think uh, a lot of times we internalize uh, trauma in such a way that we blame ourselves. Children in particular do that, you know? And... Um, you know, I didn't believe in love. I wouldn't tell my girlfriend I loved her. I was an angry punk kid, you know. I think my I became an activist early on, you know, and that channeled my anger in a more positive direction. But, you know, I really hated myself. And MDMA changed my life. It really did. And, and that's one of the reasons why 10 years later when a um, friend gave me uh, some ecstasy again, I started Dance Safe. In many ways, it was to honor the, a drug that should never have been banned. Never should MDMA have been banned. It should have been developed into a medicine 30 years ago. Maybe it could have avoided some of these cultural, environmental problems that we um, are suffering as a civilization right now. I, I know Rick Doblin believes that. It's one of the reasons why MAPS is working hard to get MDMA approved as a medicine, not just in the United States, but as quickly as possible around the entire world. So, so you know, but we know that, right? Okay, so you're asking, MDMA has, uh, in treating trauma, everyone knows, very, very uh, successful, and I think it's because it produces, uh, and nobody really knows how or why, uh, remarkable feelings of self-acceptance, where you, you like yourself, you stop blaming yourself, and I believe actually the empathy that it produces is a direct correlation to its um, ability to, to make you feel good about yourself. Because I think the only way that we can really empathize with others is when we first have a healthy ego where we like ourselves. You know, then we can start getting, you know, stop thinking about our own problems and start like, uh, you know, listening and understanding uh, other people. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, the second, say, after treating trauma, uh, relational issues are the other benefit that MDMA has. And uh, couples counseling was one of the first uses of the, of the drug. Uh, and um, end-of-life anxiety, um, although psilocybin might be more effective uh, in that regard because of its more spiritual sort of uh, feelings it produces. I know Hefter Institute's been working with psilocybin uh, for ter in terminal cancer patients, but MDMA is also being used for that. Um, and then, you know, non-medically, right, say, you know, I don't know if couples counseling is considered medical, but it'd be in the therapy genre. But let's say uh, purely uh, recreational use of the drug. Most people who don't have trauma, who don't have, you know, difficulties in their love relationships, they like MDMA because it help it, they bond with their friends and it produces uh, uh, loving, positive experiences with their friends. And that is an amazing thing. That is uh, therapeutic. You cannot separate recreation 
from therapy. And you can't certainly separate the, the therapeutic effects of MDMA from recreation, right? It's all one and the same thing. We tend to compartmentalize mental health and social we, and then imagine social health as being a uh, just an individual mental health issue, right? We go to therapists or psychiatrists for an hour a week, and we buy mental health drugs, et cetera, right? And it's very strictly regulated by the medical establishment. You know, this was not the case with psychedelics in human history going back millennia. Tribal cultures used these medicines, they called them medicines, in everyday life. So a rave, a party, uh, a celebratory atmosphere with music and dancing is the most therapeutic, medicinal, you know, if you want to say it, way to use MDMA. It probably has had a greater positive effect on the mental health and the social life of this country and others where it's used than any other drug out there, you know, currently to date, the psychedelics in general, let's say. And they're used outside, mostly outside of traditional, you know, clinical environments. And that's as it should be. We need to, like, ex- expand our minds and and really, like, you know, ask ourselves, you know, like, what, what are the cost-benefit analysis of these substances? And it's odd for me to be say, say I've, uh, just so you know, like, I founded DanceSafe, and for years and years and years of my life, I rarely talked to the media about the benefits of MDMA because I didn't want to come across as a, a zealot. I was a harm reduction activist. I was about saving lives, educating young people about the risks, right? Uh, but it's slowly, I realized, actually not slowly, I realized very quickly, and in my conversations with users, I realized that, you know, if you talk about the benefits of psychedelics, you're going to reduce their harmful behaviors more. It's kind of like child psychology. Everyone knows positive reinforcement works much better long-term than negative reinforcement. And really, you know, harm reduction began with AIDS activism, and the AIDS activists knew that. You want to get people to wear condoms, you don't just tell people, wear a condom or you can get AIDS and die. You have to make condoms cool. You got to make condoms sexy. So the early AIDS activists had billboards. They used social marketing techniques. Social marketing began with the AIDS uh, prevention movement to get people, to change people's behaviors by using traditional marketing tools that normally were used to get someone to buy a product, but instead you're trying to change the behavior in a positive direction, right? And it's about having a positive, healthy uh, relationship to, to the behavior. And you can sort of inject this this other notion about about how drugs could be used into the the minds of people because as you were saying before, even with MDMA, despite it having these unique qualities, people approach it in a way that's pretty similar to most drugs, and they treat it with the same care that they would treat other drugs with, and they're trying to obtain the same thing as with other drugs in many cases, just stimulation or some sort of euphoria, but not necessarily a empathic or interpersonal response. But if you sort of bring their mind to towards the potential benefits, if you look beyond those effects, then it starts leading to a planning behavior. They start thinking about how they could actually maximize the benefits. Not, you know, it's not just a, a night out and whatever happens, happens. It can actually be something. Uh, and that just seems to come from integrating drugs into society uh, versus having them be this sort of purely hedonistic thing, which every drug of every kind seems to be grouped in for most people. 
and therefore they don't treat it with much right. care and respect. Right. You know, and and the reason, I, I, like, very historically, you know, LSD was banned in the 60s and Nixon launched what we call the second uh, wave of the drug war as a direct result of LSD being sort of tied in with the anti-war movement. And so people uh, at that time sort of thought that LSD would make you anti-establishment, anti-American, etc. And so there's that historical part where that that uh, I think has has made people misunderstand the effects of LSD. But also the lumping of all these drugs together as if they're bad, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think comes just from the fact that most people have never used them. Most people have never used an illicit drug in their life. I think that the, uh, the rates for cannabis are a bit higher, right? Maybe 30% of people in the United States, I'm talking about, have tried cannabis. Um, and uh, maybe slightly higher than that. Um, but for most other illicit drugs, it's around 5%. When we, we have to think, those of us who have used uh, psychedelics uh, have to realize that 95% of the population has never used a psychedelic, and they don't understand what they're about. They think of them, because they're illegal, they think of them solely in terms of what the media says, and they lump it together with other drugs, and and um, and we, we, so there's a, we still are in this like, major phase of education. Uh, here's what most people think about drugs. Like, it doesn't matter what drug it is. Uh, most of the population just thinks this one thing they think it gives you so much pleasure that they're addictive uh, and you lose control and do things that you regret. That's it. They might know that meth is an upper because they watch Breaking Bad or whatever and heroin is a downer and LSD gives you hallucinations. But they tenderly tend to think that these drugs disinhibit you make you lose control, and, and that that's bad for society. That, that's all they know. And, you know, like, I think one of the reasons we're seeing such progress in cannabis reform is because if you've not smoked cannabis yourself, like, you at least know half a dozen people who have, and they've been out of the closet for years now, and you think, okay, so, you know, cannabis isn't what everyone's, you know, it's, it's not having this effect. It's not making uh, black men rape white women, etc. right? So... Uh, that's why I'm really, you know, happy to see all these young people coming out of the psychedelic closet too, and telling people, "Hey, you know, we we use these drugs, and we're better for it." And you know, I'm working alongside of you, right? <laughs> like I'm Steve Jobs. I founded Apple, and I use LSD, right? And you know, it'd be easy to see in a rational society, like a first step, like we legalize these psychedelics for ritual use. I mean, there's various ways that we can. Uh, legalize and regulate drugs and psychedelics would be much more liberal you know than some of the drugs with greater addiction potential that do have greater social harms resulting from them but i think we'll see once we do legalize and regulate them i mean anything other than other other prohibition uh we're going to see so much reduction in harm and fatalities etc and you know what were you gonna say well i was going to go back a second to what i said the early part of this uh interview where i was talking about you know addictive drugs and oh how we need to like sort of go on the offensive and point the finger at prohibition for uh jeopardizing the lives of young people for causing fatalities instead of you know them pointing the finger at 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 us the reformers right 
And and one of the things that's important to understand uh, in that debate is that those of us who are calling for drug policy reform, for legal regulation of these substances, um, we're not saying that these substances should be available in 7-Eleven, right? Uh, that's very important. Uh, I like to separate the civil rights argument from the harm reduction argument and show how that informs the regulation aspect of various drugs. Every drug needs to be legalized differently, and I don't use the word legalization. I try to say legal regulation because the regulation part's very important. And so, you know, we can protect the civil rights of uh, uh, adults, uh, the cognitive liberty argument, while simultaneously protecting young people from unregulated drug markets by regulating these substances appropriately. And I like to use uh, cannabis and heroin as the two examples on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Cannabis legalization really is liberalization. Uh, in every state that's passed recreation or medical laws, they're allowing backyard cultivation and uh, the whole goal is to open up a taxable retail market. But uh, cannabis is in a very unique position with other recreational drugs because uh, nobody's ever died from cannabis. And voters are rightfully not concerned about increased access uh, to cannabis, even to minors. You know, I don't, you know, I think parents are concerned their kids are, when their kids start smoking pot too early or whatever. But generally, you're, you know, you would much rather your teenager smoked pot than drank alcohol, right? So, but this is not the way we need to legalize other drugs. And unfortunately, when people think of legalization, that's what they think of. And that's why I like to point out another form of legalization that's happening in different countries around the world, or another drug that's been legalized, and that's heroin. Heroin is legal in a number of countries. And people raise their eyebrows. Oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I'm like, well, but it's very strictly regulated. Switzerland uh, has the, the, the most number, the largest program for heroin addiction treatment, often referred to the acronym HAT, HAT, Heroin Addiction Treatment or Heroin Maintenance. And they go, oh, well, that's not legalization. I say, well, no, yes, it is. It's legalization with strict regulation. If you are an addict, you can enter a heroin maintenance program where you can get free heroin three times a day, perfectly legally. And the reason that, and this is available in Switzerland, Germany, Canada, and some other countries, the reason that heroin maintenance has been uh, implemented in these countries is actually not because uh, it will help the, the user. That, that Switzerland started it like 15 years ago now, and it, what they, they weren't trying to help the addict. They didn't realize it was going to help the addict as much as it actually did. The reason that they gave free heroin to addicts uh, is because they were trying to shrink the criminal heroin market because they understood that 90% of heroin is consumed by addicts. And if you take the addicts out of the market, dealers go out of business. There isn't a market for it anymore. And you shrink the supply there and, and you see fewer new addicts. And that's exactly what happened in Switzerland when they implemented these programs. And every year, uh, you know, voters, uh, Every time it comes up, they, they, they vote it back in. They, they've been continuing these programs for 15 years. It also happened to help the addicts, right? When you don't have to associate with criminals, when you don't have to spend all your money on your heroin, uh, you can get a job, you can put food in the fridge for your kids, improve your self-esteem, 
and uh, you don't have to commit crimes. There's all these positive benefits for the actual um, daily heroin user. Uh, but that's not the reason they started it. Um, and so I think if we look at these two examples, we can start to think about how we want to legalize other drugs to both allow for cognitive liberty, uh, but also protect the weak and vulnerable. And for a drug like MDMA, it's got to be in the middle, right, between heroin and cannabis. We don't want MDMA available. We don't want, we don't want you know, 13-year-olds to be able to go buy, you know, a pound of MDMA at a, 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 from, from a retail store, right? But if we allowed adults safe legal access, say a national registry where you, you, you take a course, you make sure you understand the risks and benefits, and you, um, uh, you get an ID card, and that allows you to go to licensed dispensaries, head shops, whoever can, you know, and buy uh, pure MDMA, um, low cost, because again, the point is to eliminate the criminal market, so it has to be low cost MDMA, um, enough for personal use, you would remove all the adults from the MDMA market, uh, the unregulated criminal market, dramatically decreasing the profit potential in that market and shrinking the supply. People then ask me, uh, how much would you allow an adult to obtain per month, say, for personal use? And I say, as much as it takes to shrink the damn criminal market to protect young people, right? You're going to have diversion, just like you do with alcohol, where adults buy it for kids, and that will remain illegal. But that situation I'm describing here, I think it would be immensely preferable to the, what we have going on today, where teenagers can buy Molly from you know half a dozen of their friends easily, but at least they have to go to an adult to get alcohol. So you would like to see basically, you know, some path to accessing all the currently illicit drugs, but you don't really want to see a market type, you know, retail system applied. You know, there's no special regulations pertaining to it. You don't want to open it up to that degree. We, we have to like look like I'm for any kind of legalization and, and change, you know, but we have to look at what's going to fly politically. And I'm giving here a political argument that with drugs that have um, more risk uh, associated with them. And that means really like more pleasure that we need to recognize the importance of protecting young people. And I think a lot of libertarians, for example, kind of ignore children in their equation. You know, uh, anyone who's read, I always ask them jokingly and when they argue with me, though, it should just be free market, right? Like, oh, well, do you have kids? Because <laughs> if you let your kids eat anything they wanted, you know, because I, I have two kids now, they're um they're older, but uh, but I remember when they were younger, right? If you let your kids eat anything they want, they will only eat sugar and they will die. And you have to be a parent to realize that. You're like, oh my God, kids do not have the ability to delay their gratification and to consume uh, food or anything that, that is appropriate for their health. And so it's absolutely 100% the case that if, you know, children took, you know, uh, dopamine, pleasure-inducing drugs, they wouldn't have the impulse control uh, to stop. They wouldn't be able to assess, you know, that. And so we don't want pleasure drugs, <laughs> and I include, um, you know, meth, cocaine, MDMA is in there too. It's a little different, but there's enough pleasure that I think people, young people could get in trouble with it, at least until they're old enough to be educated, to understand the risks, to sort of 
you know, the, all the things we've been talking about, right? And so, you know, you're going to make this argument for a, a type of legal regulation to the public at large. It's got to be one that also, along with civil rights, embodies the harm reduction approach and, and that, again, takes away from the drug warriors this notion that prohibition is protecting children. We need to protect the children by legalizing and, and regulating because prohibition creates an unregulated market that makes the, these drugs and fake drugs – available to minors. Criminals don't ask for ID when they sell drugs. As long as you have the money, you can buy them, right? I say all this also realizing that the best time, the best age to take MDMA for childhood trauma uh, is when you're an adolescent, before your brain has had a chance to solidify. We have plasticity, more brain plasticity than we thought, even as adults. But when we're children... Uh, up to the age of about 21, uh, we have a lot more plasticity. Uh, you know, we're born with an overabundance of, of neurons uh, in our brain when we're a child. And this is why children learn so quickly. Their brain literally forms around their experiences. So uh, it's why it's harder to learn a language when you're an adult because what you experience and the neurons that you use through your childhood, they stay. And the ones that you don't use die. Now, we used to think that you never grew any. Up until about 15 years ago, science thought that we were born with all the brain cells we're ever going to have, and then they just, it's a downhill from there. But we now know you can grow brain cells, so we have more plasticity than we think. But the plasticity that we have when we're children is immense. And so strengthening that self-acceptance, those positive feedback loops, getting the the, the MDMA experience that makes you love yourself, that ma that helps you to overcome that trauma, all that's much easier and, and has a more lasting effect, I believe, if it's done during adolescent years. That's also from my personal experience. I don't believe I'd be the same person if I didn't find MDMA uh, when I did. And you also don't want to have that trauma, whatever was experienced, sort of solidify for too long. That's right. It'd be nice to interrupt it and, and begin to move past. It's also a reason why I agree when it comes to children using drugs that there's this additional concern about regulating behavior because if somebody were to develop an addiction at 15, it seems possible you would end up with a more solidified, stagnant pattern of behavior compared to if it happens later, sort of a greater susceptibility to that kind of, of use. One of the things I was thinking about is that when it comes to legalization in our current situation for, say, research chemicals, it seems as though we're moving in a direction where there could be a diversification of drug use, which brings to mind drugs people have created sometimes specifically to replace MDMA. What are your thoughts on 4-FA and 6-APB and type substances? Do you think they compare to MDMA, could be safer, could have some sort of role in that market? I don't think there's any drug that compares with MDMA. Uh, I haven't done 6-APB. Uh, I've taken 4-FA. I've taken methylone. Uh, but I, I don't make this conclusion on my own personal experiences anyway, because I know drugs all affect people differently. But just in researching, talking to enough people, watching, I don't think there's any drug that compares to MDMA in terms of its therapeutic benefit and, and, and intactogenic effect. Uh, I, I think that uh, 
you know, uh, there was a lot of legal research. Dave Nichols came up with MDPV in his effort to find a replacement for MDMA that would have the therapeutic benefits, but not the recreational temptations. And uh, I, I like the, the NIDA would call that abuse potential, right? But um, I think that's a misguided effort. I think we can't separate the stress release from the happiness, from the pleasure all that goes hand in hand. MDMA, a drug that uh, relieved the stress enough to help a person uh, reconsolidate traumatic memories, would by necessity be pleasurable because that's what stress release is, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and as far as finding one that's less dangerous, I don't think MDMA is that dangerous, right? Like, you know, True. so... I think we have, we've, you know, and there, and decades have gone by of people looking for this, right? MDMA is the most studied drug in the world. There haven't, there's no drug that has had more studies, you know, scientific studies on it than MDMA. Researchers, scientists are fascinated by this drug precisely because of its uh, relation to human emotions of love and empathy. I mean, that's profound, right? You know, Dave Nichols isn't the only researcher that was trying to find substitutes for this drug. We have a you know, huge worldwide network of underground chemists now producing, like you said, all of these new drugs looking for something. And nothing's come out that compares yet, you know? In many ways, MDMA was the last greatest drug, right? Like uh, you had LSD in the 60s and, oh, I don't know, you say 2CB is really good too. You know, there's a lot of, but, but, but there's like, MDMA is qualitatively different. It's like this, you know, there's nothing else really quite like it. Which is pretty interesting when you consider the number of stimulants and even serotonin centric stimulants that have been created that nothing quite feels like MDMA. And I don't have a lot of experience in that area, but I've had MDMA and I've had 4FA and at least in that area, they're quite different. Um, so even with something like MDA, which had some early therapeutic type use, it still you think is, is distinctly different. I do. There, uh, MDA is uh, very likely just a broad-based um, mono. Uh, sorry, a broad-based serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or and maybe some receptor agonism too. Um, but it doesn't release serotonin in the same quantity. We, with MDA is not cross-tolerant with MDMA. Uh, w which indicates that it's uh, acting somewhat differently. And again, you know, for me and for most people, uh, MDA has, you know, maybe a quarter of the intactogenic effect um, that MDMA has, um, and more of a stimulant effect and uh, more, well, more. It has a mild hallucinogenic effect, which MDMA has none of. I think actually mescaline may have more of an intactogenic effect than MDMA, but that's just from my personal experience. There's a recurring theme of, of the term magic when it comes to MDMA that just everybody keeps pointing out the magic wasn't there. And you don't see that for psychedelics to the same degree. I mean, there's a lot of people who really get into other psychedelics, or at least they have their own unique aspects that make them sort of cool. It's not like LSD is, is classically the pinnacle, whereas for intactogens, MDMA really seems to be. Bring it to just sort of ending on policy to some extent. Do you think, because I've seen some skepticism about uh, whether MAPS will be successful in bringing MDMA into the 
legal medicinal market by 2021? And do you think there's, do you think that's possible and likely? And also, do you think the current administration could in some way push that back? I, I think it's going to happen. I don't think anything's going to stop it. Um, I'd be interested in hearing w- w- the people who are skeptical, whether they have any information or if that's just coming from like, they just can't believe it could ever be possible because it is going to happen. Uh, I spoke to Rick uh, about a month ago about or a couple months ago about the Trump administration. He said that they met, MAPS met with the, with Trump's FDA transition team and were told directly by them, uh, if you haven't realized it, we're trying to make it easier for pharmaceuticals to bring drugs to market, right? Like, uh, yeah. They're like, wow, okay. they, they were told directly that we're, you're not, we're not going to stop you from this, from doing this, you know. So, you know, I, I don't think, Rick has said on many occasions the recreational use of MDMA is no longer a hindrance to the uh, medical legalization. Uh, the DEA doesn't feel that medical legalization is a threat because uh, they can still crack down on recreational use, just like they do with uh, opiates and coca. Yeah, a, a lot of these drugs, like, where there's a raging drug war going on, these are Schedule II drugs that have medical use. Right, even meth is prescribed to children with severe. So, so rescheduling MDMA to Schedule two or three is is not going to stop the drug war against recreational MDMA. We're still going to have a lot of work to do after it's legalized medicinally. But um, I, I think that um, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, there's nothing that's going to stop MDMA from becoming a, a legal medicine. Yeah, I've had the same opinion on that. And it seems as though psychedelics might be coming right behind, given how fast some of the research is taking place, which is encouraging. Do you feel like psychedelics could be there by, you know, the mid 2020s? You know, uh, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time to bring a drug through the FDA process, I would hope that we would um, bypass that simply by uh, legally regulating uh, psychedelics. I think even decriminalization might be the... Well, I think it will be the next step. We've already seen California Prop 47 decriminalize personal possession not full decriminalization, it's still, a, but it's just a misdemeanor. And just a few days ago, Oregon uh, did the same thing. Not as good of a law as California, but um, most drugs for personal possession are now uh, misdemeanors, unless you already have a felony or two drug-related convictions. Then, yeah, that seemed like a weird policy. Yeah, but. it is. I think they are trying to appeal to you know lowest common denominator. Um, a lot of conservatives in the state, you know, et cetera. And, uh, you know, but, but one, you know, once more states do this and they see how much money they're saving and they see how it's not increasing uh, drug-related harms, et cetera, I, I think that that's going to be that we're going to see drugs decriminalized and then that, that then people are going to say, hey, well, like, let's uh, regulate these substances, the sale of them, um, you know, make more money. Uh, te- you know, states can make money taxing them, et cetera. And um, my goal has always been uh, getting psychedelics uh, legalized in my in my lifetime. I think that's a reasonable goal. You know, if I live thirty more years, I think thirty years, you know, is a reasonable time period to see psychedelics legalized. I think it might take, but you you know, things happen quickly, right? Uh, you never know, yeah. right? It, we might end up seeing 
like legal regulation. I mean, it, it, all it's going to take is realize, you know, heroin maintenance, right? Like, you know, it's it, it's framed in terms of um, addiction maintenance, uh, and it's happening already in a number of countries. That could happen really soon, and that's all we really need. You know, let at, let people who are daily opiate users get their daily opiate without having to commit crimes and spend all their money doing it. You can live a long, healthy life if on a on a maintenance high maintenance dose of an opiate like like heroin. Uh, it doesn't have the hardest drugs to imagine uh, how to legally regulate uh, are 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 the stimulants, particularly meth, right? Uh, but you know, like uh, we're not stopping it spread. So like um, uh, we should do something <laughs> different. <laughs> putting people in jail and the violence around the cartels. You know, just 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 uh, strip, just destroying the cartels and the and the and the criminal markets which are associated with so much violence. You know, is like the main reason that we need to legalize all drugs right now, like immediately. And uh, you know, I like to say the. the you know, it's more important that we legalize heroin and, and meth and c- drugs that are having the most harmful impact on society because legalizing them is not what people think. Legalizing comes with, again, strict regulation that will basically destroy the cartels and the crime around it. And then we deal with it as a public health issue. And uh, even if we see a small increase in use of, from it, 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 it's so much better for society. You know, that more a greater imperative to legalize the the more damaging drugs than than it is MDMA and the psychedelics. The psychedelics we want to legalize them because we want their use to spread, right? Be honest, be honest with ourselves. Like our our world, our civilization is at a crossroads right now. We're we're either going to heal from our collective trauma that we keep perpetuating onto every generation below us in the same way that an abused child abuses their child. We're either going to nip that in the bud, or we're not going to survive as a civilization. I'm not so naive as to think like people in the 60s about LSD that oh, just put in the water supply and everything's going to save the world. It's more than just it's more than just legalizing the drug. It's it's embracing the path of healing, both on an individual and a collective level. That's the thing when I look back at my personal use of MDMA, it really began with the Quakers who I met, these two adults, first grown-ups in my life that treated me with respect and got me on a path of healing. I went into my first drug experience, MDMA, with the intention of using it to heal. And I think that's really what's needed. It's not, you know, it's MDMA it's a therapeutic medicine, but it's the therapy, in, you know, that's the most important part of it, right? People need to get on a path of, uh, of healing to the degree that our culture is just a reflection of the individuals in it, you know. Um, we may be able to uh, change our culture uh, and these wars and the huge rift between liberals and conservatives if we get, if we, you know, just decide to do it. And I, and I think, you know, to the degree that we haven't uh, healed from our own trauma, whatever that trauma was from, you know, being bullied, you, you know, like, uh, anyway, <laughs> without trying to be, like, uh, uh, zealous and idealistic, I, uh, uh, I have greater hope in, uh, in psychedelics and healing our, the problems of our world than I do in, in 
just political action alone. And I, you know, I've been an activist for, you know, for 40 years, right? Well, let's see, like 34 years I've been an activist and uh, things have only gotten worse. <laughs> so, And that's one of the most encouraging aspects of MDMA. It's not something I've used personally much, but when it even as compared to the classic psychedelics, the sort of experiences people sometimes have, I mean, sometimes they really just have a recreational experience. They don't have any sort of insight into relationships or anything, but there is this fairly common experience that people have, especially if they go into it with a certain intention where, you know, I remember uh, Sam Harris's, who's a, he's a philosopher, mm -hmm. uh, his, his experience that he described with MDMA, where he was young, I think maybe in his teens, early 20s, and he was describing how he wasn't very, you know, used to suddenly realizing how much love he had for the male friends in his life. And, and, but that kind of experience of increasing the true appreciation of other people, seeing things from their perspective, as you were saying, too, also becoming more comfortable with yourself, because that's a source of a lot of the sort of antagonistic relationships people have. And, you know, that really can't be overstated in terms of the benefits that can come from it. And being able to guide people towards that, especially if you have legal therapy type centers and therapy extends to, you know, just like right now, you don't necessarily need to have a, a diagnosable problem to go to a therapist. Sometimes you just go to a therapist to get help with your life. Right. And you could picture MDMA use being guided in a similar way, because it could just be a life enhancement thing, right. or a couples therapy thing. And yeah, I mean, that's a, a unique and promising quality, especially as you were saying, in terms of uh, the, the current political climate, we could use more people uh, realizing that the other side is not always Hitler, as some people like to suggest. Right. <laughs> yeah. Your current project uh, is MDMA, the movie, as far as I am aware. How is the progress on that? Can you just briefly explain the general topics that you uh, explore in the movie and and when people might be able to, to check it out? Yeah, well, so I've been working on this movie for three and a half years now. I didn't realize it was going to take so long, but I was told by a number of independent filmmakers that that's normal for your first film. It's a steep learning curve, and I don't settle for less. I've already raised and spent uh, over 200000 on it, and uh, I need at least 200000 more, so we're still fundraising. Uh, we Most of principal photography is done. You know, we're going to enter into post-production now editing and motion graphics music um that's a big very expensive process and a lot of a lot of films it's more expensive than the actual filming itself uh so we're right now i've hooked up with a uh, co-director and he has uh, worked on a number of award-winning documentaries it's really great to have him on board his name is johnny o'hara um, you can Google him and see some of the, the films that he's made that have won awards at Sundance. So we are now finishing up a private fundraising trailer that we're going to be showing to, uh, guess, more industry music or sorry, film industry funders. Um, I've done a lot of fundraising from the psychedelic advocacy community now. And so with Johnny on board, we're branching out to other fund funders. And um, it's a hot topic with a lot of um, interest in it. So I. And now with someone with a filmmaking documentary uh, successes under his belt, I think we're going to um, soon raise all the money we need to finish. And then we're talking about maybe six months of, of editing. Um, so we might have it done within nine months, you know. Um, hopefully it'll be done next year, uh, 2018. 
It uh, will focus on both MDMA's recreational uh, use and medical use, uh, obviously advocating uh, harm reduction um, f uh, on the uh, recreational side. Uh, it's going to challenge uh, stigma. Um, it, in many ways, I call it a drug policy reform documentary that um, pivots around MDMA. MDMA is sort of the central drug in it, but we're going to talk about drug policy and our people's attitudes about drugs uh, and um, sort of try to try to change hearts and minds and and uh, end the drug war because I think MDMA is the drug to end that's going to end the drug war and and there's a reason for that right and that is you know the drug war is maintained by the the stigma and the shaming uh, around drugs that prohibition has created and that includes the internalization of that shame when uh, uh, young people uh, use drugs, they, they internalize that stigma and feel that the, what they're using is, what they're doing is bad, right? But there's this interesting phenomenon where um, uh, when people take MDMA, it's really hard for them to think they're doing something bad <laughs> because the pharmacological effect of MDMA is precisely to make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> to remove the shame. Yeah, that's how it heals PTSD. PTSD usually results when a person has internalized their trauma to blame themselves. That's when it becomes debilitating. And that's why childhood abuse really affects, uh, really results in PTSD more than, than trauma that it, it, it happens when you're an adult. Uh, because children have a tendency to blame themselves because their perpetrators say it's their parents or whatever. Like, well, you, you know, you're no good. You're good for nothing, and 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 this is happening to you because it's your fault. It's a way that the the perpetrator projects onto the child, and the and the child internalizes that, right? And so you um you know this drug heals PTSD precisely because it makes you feel good about yourself. So there's this common phrase people say when they take MDMA the first time. I I said it myself, and I said it first time I took it when I was a teenager, and I've heard a lot of first time users say it. You start to feel the effects when it fully kicks in. You go, why is this illegal? Right? Because you still think that drugs are made illegal because they're bad. Right? And you can take cocaine. You can take heroin. You can take uh, even LSD and still maintain that sort of the internalized shame. Oh, I know I'm doing something bad, right? Because, you know, but MDMA tends to bring the best out in people. You know, when, when you take MDMA and you forgive your father for their abuse or you take MDMA and you realize what a shit you've been to your wife and you're like, oh my God, I have to tell her I love her so much, you know, like it, th th these aren't things you feel shameful about, right? <laughs> and so it makes people question the drug war. One of the consultants on my film is Mike Power, who's an, uh, a journalist in England, and he's my age, like 47-ish, and he told me that uh, when MDMA came out in England, like, it, it changed their perspective on drugs. Like, he and his friends and his whole generation of young people in England were like, oh, drugs are bad. Yeah, we never use drugs, right? Drugs, they kill you, they, they blah, blah, blah. And then they did an ecstasy, and they're like, drugs are good. Like, we have been misinformed, right? Drugs are good, right? This is what MDMA is. It's, it's changed this whole new generation of these millennials, and now they, you know, what's the generation Z? I don't I can't know what we're calling the generation younger than millennials. But millennials and younger, I am so proud of them. They are coming out 
and uh, challenging the drug war in ways that the generation before has never done. And I personally believe that is because of MDMA. Students for Sensible Drug Policy, uh, SSDP, the largest drug policy reform group, active group, they have chapters in hundreds of universities around the world. They... Uh, are shifting towards um, psychedelics from uh, cannabis uh, emphasis right now. They've been inviting me to speak, you know, like uh, on, I've done probably eight, eight college lectures right now on MDMA. I, I believe MDMA is the drug that's going to end the drug war for all these various reasons. It's getting people to sort of, it's shake, it's, it's, it's shaking up the propaganda around the drug war, which was based upon shame. Um, because the drug gets rid of shame. And the DEA uh, made a huge mistake in banning MDMA. It's going to be the drug that undermines their entire drug war. It's a sort of argument that Carl Hart has sometimes been focusing on recently, which is that drugs are not just... There's a lot of people in the drug policy reform area that kind of say drugs are bad, but we need to, you know, find a way to make them less bad. And that's through legal regulation, but it never really recognizes the potential for benefits. Right. And I mean, he he tries to make the argument um, and you can, it's just, I think, harder for, you know, here's the benefit of me using methamphetamine or heroin as he does. And you can make that argument. But I do think, as was kind of being said earlier, that there's just something unique with MDMA where it doesn't, it's a unique kind of euphoria, which is why it's kind of unfortunate that we only have that term or that's the term that people often attach to it because a euphoric stimulant, it just doesn't feel really anything like uh, euphoria from MDMA. So, and it's not a hedonistic euphoria. Right. It's 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 sort of a, a healing euphoria. I mean, even if it's just in the context of a, a festival or something, people still report very different experiences than if they had taken amphetamine for that experience. And, and that says a lot about opening up at least the doorway for people to realize, hey, maybe drugs could be integrated, at least certain drugs, into society in such a way that we're actually better off for it. So it's nice to see people actually focusing on that and not always being afraid to ever say, suggest that drugs could be used in a, a reasonably safe way. In the same way that when you were describing the interview with uh, 60 Minutes, that you don't want to sort of adopt the opposing argument, sort of agree and then try to reframe it or something. Thing. You really want to say, no, you've just understood, you've just misunderstood drugs. Uh, the whole thing that you're suggesting is actually incorrect. It's not simply that they're harmful and we need to find a new way to reduce harm. It's actually more complicated. So, right, right. Like, are you promoting drug use? You know, uh, now I say, yes, absolutely. I'm promoting responsible drug use. That's what we need to do. We need to promote it. <laughs> right. So for people to learn more about MDMA, the movie or yourself, or I don't know what connection you have to dance safe, but dance safe as well. Um, where can people go and, you know, any social media or stuff they could volunteer to help with? Yeah. So people can go to MDMA, the movie.com. There's some pre-release materials up there, little videos. But what I like to say is we're, uh, absolutely saving the best and not making them pub not making it public <laughs> but you can see some interview clips uh, we have a facebook page um make uh, maybe daily posts just news about mdma as it comes out um sign up to the email list uh you'll get um periodic reports on how our progress is and then when we do have um our initial premieres you'll know where they are and so you can go and see them um, Dance Safe, of course, is dancesafe.org. That's the organization I founded. I'm only peripherally involved uh, in that organization right now. Um, but that's where you can buy uh, testing kits 
uh, also. And you can uh, donate to the movie. We have an ongoing crowdfunding campaign on our website, mdmaythemovie.com. Uh, we have over 3,000 um, uh, donors so far. So we're going to, uh, anyone that donates $50 or more will get their name in the credits at the end of the film. In many ways, this is the movie is made for uh, the people and by the people. <laughs> We've made raised a lot of money a little in a very small donation. So thank you to everyone. Great. I'll have to uh, check that out. I didn't even realize there was still a ongoing crowdfunding campaign. So I'll definitely contribute to that. Yeah, that's awesome. So thank you for coming on. I'll put all of this in the description so people can find Dance Safe and MDMA the movie. It was great having you on. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing it. 